these people, these groups, these loosely organized movements that basically coordinate on Instagram or Twitter or WhatsApp or etc. are deciding that the social media bang of mass protesting on the streets and getting out their messages that way is more compelling or more necessary at this point in time than other previously what we would consider effective ways of affecting change in their societies and governments. It's the week of October 28, and welcome to the latest episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and the political right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today we have with us Jody Herman, who is the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Matthew Hyman, NSI Associate Director of Global Security, and former attorney attorney at the National Security Division at the Department of Justice, and I'm Lester Munson, currently a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we'll be discussing the number of populist protests we see around the globe in France, Lebanon, Chile, Egypt, and Algeria, and the causes of political turmoil. We'll also be looking at India and Brazil, whose governments seem to be recently involved in some pretty controversial activities. First up, let's talk about demonstrations. All right. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of stuff going on around the globe. It seems uh, at a higher level than ever. France, Lebanon, Egypt, Chile, Algeria. In Lebanon, uh, protests were started, uh, but this is my favorite one, uh, were started by the, a proposed tax on otherwise free WhatsApp phone calls. Uh, in Algeria, it was the prospect of re-electing a nanogenarian who hasn't been seen in public in years, kind of a weekend at Bernie's scenario, uh, for those of you who were around in the 90s. Uh, in France, it was a proposed gas tax or carbon tax. In Egypt, people are pointing to big infrastructure projects, extending the Suez Canal for billions of dollars that are called vanity projects for President Sisi. Uh, in Barcelona, Spain, the airport was occupied by separatists. Uh, in Russia, there is the more conventional protests surrounding uh, the suppression of democracy. Uh, we also saw earlier this year protests in Sudan that actually led to the head of state being replaced. So there's a lot of stuff going on around the world. All right. So do we think that this is a higher level of, of, of popular unrest than we would normally be seeing? Who wants to jump in first? Jody. So, yes, but I think we might want to separate those protests into two categories. One would be political, and the other is kind of more general dissatisfaction or economic protests. On the political side, I'd put certainly the Hong Kong protests are political. The Russia protests are largely political with some elements of concern about economics and corruption. The Spain protests are very clearly uh, politically driven. On the other on the other hand, you've got Lebanon over the WhatsApp, Chile over, over Metrofairs, and so on. So I think the ones that are, you've always had political protests in response to things developing in a country. What's interesting to me right now is this growth in protests that aren't the typical political protests, but those that are happening in say, Lebanon and Chile, where you're seeing a common thread amongst protesters who are very dissatisfied with both the political and economic situations in their country. It's a relatively small pocketbook issues that have grown into massive protests, which seem to show not just dissatisfaction over a new tax, but general dissatisfaction that people feel that the system that they're working and living in is unfair. 
And I would just add here some other interesting elements of what we're seeing in these protests across various regions, different forms of government, etc. There aren't clear leaders that are organizing these protests. It's, it's people taking to the streets, and they're mostly organizing through Twitter, other forms of social media. And another aspect of this that, that's very interesting to me is that the other forms that people, constituents, would normally take to express concern, the ballot box, civil society, going to their parliaments, etc. They're choosing not to do any of those things. That these people, these groups, these loosely organized movements that basically coordinate on Instagram or Twitter or WhatsApp or etc. are deciding that the social media bang of mass protesting on the streets and getting out their messages that way is more compelling or more necessary Necessary at this point in time than other previously what we would consider effective ways of affecting change in their societies and governments. So, Matthew, uh, you know, we in this country believe in representative democracy. We've been practicing it for a long time, and while we occasionally have some complaints about the result, we generally have a system built on the idea that you elect someone who's then accountable to the voters, but that person makes decisions about public policy and the things that affect our lives and that kind of thing, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good mechanism. Is the, is what's your sense? Do you think we're seeing uh, maybe people who are newly dissatisfied with being so indirectly related to the governmental decisions that affect their lives? Is this a is this a cry for more direct democracy? Do people want to you know you could almost imagine a system where you know you vote on your phone whether or not there should be an increased metro tax if you know it's going to go for a certain thing and you could just implement policy that way? Yes. Although I think that would be awful, but um, but I, I think the way um, Jody split it up between um, political and economic protests is one way to divide these. I think another way to divide them is uh, situations where you have an effective mechanism to effectuate change at the governing level, and other countries where you don't. So in Hong Kong, there's no opportunity for those people to really vote for a more representative form of government that's going to reflect their views. In Lebanon, while it is sort of a democracy, it's also sort of a bunch of factions that all prop each other up. You know, as you know, um, you know, Hariri is a Sunni, and by definition under the Lebanese constitution, the next occupant of the office also has to be a Sunni. So in those places, there's not the same dynamic of being able to change out your leadership to get a better result or a different approach. Whereas in Chile, obviously, there is a functioning, well-functioning democracy. There's certainly a well-functioning democracy in Spain. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting in a lot of these protests is there's, and, and I know Dana sort of uh, alluded to this, there's a certain shallowness in it. In other words, um, it is largely organized through social media. It happens very quickly. There's not clear leadership of the protests in the way that we might have looked 40 years ago and you saw a slow but uh, firm movement in a place like Poland with solidarity where it was clearly that Lekwalesa was the leader of that movement or Vaclav Havel in what was then Czechoslovakia was the leader of that movement. I think because these things are so shallow and they happen so fast, you don't have clear leadership and you don't have a clear set of demands. For example, in France, you've got the Yellow Vest movement and it's really hard other than the initial 
anger over an increase in hydrocarbon tax that affected rural areas where people drive more, it was really hard to articulate after a while what the ask was. It's, it seems like uh, what we're seeing is the folks who are on the losing end of a public policy decision or an election are just taking to the streets, even though they, they didn't win through either the mechanism or the vote, and are taking to the streets because their, their complaints aren't being satisfied. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to accept you know, a governmental outcome, either through a vote or representative democracy that they don't really like. I don't know that I think that's fair less. I think it's about a lot more than that. I don't think it's just about people taking to social media because they didn't win the election. I think it's about the system in totality. People are unhappy with the process that puts candidates forward toward office. In other words, they don't feel like they can access the political branch at all, even if they are voting. Because who gets on the list to be a candidate? Who from which party can possibly become the president of a state is really controlled by a political faction system. So people, these are really protests that are being driven by young people. And those young people don't, as much as they may make up a huge majority of the population in a lot of these countries, don't feel like they have access into the political system. And they feel like both the economic and political system are inherently unfair to them and not taking their views into account, which is to some extent true. I just have to add here, though, when it comes to the protests we're seeing in the Middle East, most of these people didn't vote for these candidates or these people that are in power. And it's not just about political rights or political dignity or objection to some increase in attacks. The the governments are fundamentally not delivering for their people. So whether it's the social compact, economic opportunities, safety, etc., these are people who feel, I think, in the Middle East at, at, at a minimum, that they have no options other than to protest because the system is designed in such a way that voting is not going to affect change or going to their parliaments is not going to affect change or whatever marginal decisions their government ministries may take are not going to meaningfully impact their lives. And this is where the conundrum, I think, for, for U.S. policy, since we're talking about fault lines and what the United States could or could not be doing about something, is it's very hard to figure out, given that there's not a unifying message, given that there's not leaders, it's hard to figure out what the United States should or should not do. Should we just step back and watch it happen? Or what happens after these protests? Because arguably, if the governments are not able to respond to any of the desires of these protesters, even though in some of these situations it's really hard to figure out what the protesters actually want, does it lead to more instability on the other side? And so I think there's there's a huge challenge in terms of looking at all of these. Can you draw any macro conclusions? You need to understand the local context. And in many of these, I think there's a risk that on the other side, these protesters are even more disappointed when they don't see change in a way that's meaningfully impacting their lives and leads to more instability. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about U.S. response, at least the U.S. government's response to demonstrations in other countries. Generally speaking, right? We we embrace democratic change. We like the voice of the people to be heard. We have an entire. Uh, uh, part of our foreign assistance program that helps countries adopt democracy. It helps develop the systems that are used, the advocates that are needed to keep the system moving, and the and the party structures and the, and the voting and, and all of the things that go along with democracy. It's very difficult work. A lot of terrific people are doing it. Uh, both parties, conservatives, liberals, there's this uh, agreement from the 80s that this is a, a good thing to be funding. And, and even during the Trump administration where, you know, frankly, the president's been a lot less willing to endorse 
democracy and human rights issues, those programs have continued largely because of supporting Congress, but some from certain people in the administration also, to be fair. So are, is this something we should be embracing? Should we be promoting a lot of some kinds of this dissent? Should we be, should we be out there talking about how this can lead in a positive direction? Jody. So we've learned a lot over the last 30 years, say from the time of the transitions in Central and Eastern Europe, about what constitutes a democracy and about why it's about a lot more than elections, right? It's also about democratic governance and rule of law uh, and rule of law issues. I do think that there is bipartisanship generally on this issue, at least as far as providing from Congress support for supporting democracy globally. Whether or not we carry that message with us in all of our diplomacy has honestly varied from country to country. And even within Democratic and Republican administrations, there is a little bit of a tendency to think about what's convenient in terms of our economic and security interests and sometimes ignore Democratic activists in the field who are looking to make long-term sustainable democratic change. My theory on this is you can do both of these things. We can walk and chew gum. We're a big country. We have resources to do that. We can be investing in long-term democratic growth while also addressing security and economic interests, and we should never, ever be shy about voicing our dual interests. Yeah, I, I agree with most of that. I do think there there remains, though, an issue, and, and and we sort of cover this in talking about the different countries. Each country is its own box of issues, right? So we, we, I think we sometimes want to paint with a broad brush and say it's all like this or it's all like that, when we all know that the protests in Hong Kong are wildly different than those in Chile, and those are wildly different than what's going on in Lebanon. Um, so, yeah, I think in general it's good to be an advocate for democracy, and as Jody Riley said, not just elections, but democracy and rule of law and civil society. Um, but I think there's there's always going to be a fundamental uh, hedging of bets when necessary. There are times when we need help from the Souths. They are not democratic. There are times when we need to work with other countries that are not democratic because it's in the broader U.S. interest to accomplish some uh, discrete goal. And I know that that sort of grinds some people's teeth, but I think that's just a reality. You know, until the world is universally democratic, which I don't think will happen in my lifetime. But I do agree that in general, it's part of the U.S. long-term interest and benefit to have more democracies around the world, not less. I'll just add here, I think, you know, because this is a podcast about fault lines and where there's bipartisan consensus and divergence, it's important to look back at the democracy or the freedom agenda of the George W. Bush administration and the ways in which the Obama administration attempted to promote civil society development, political party strengthening, support to organizations that were working on these sorts of uh, democracy strengthening programs, but didn't necessarily use the word democracy, which is a problem in certain countries, in certain contexts. And in other times when there were mass um, protests, the Obama administration decided not to necessarily support those protesters because of of other uh, like concerns. An, the nuclear like in Iran. 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 Like in Iran. I'm, just, I'm just making just sure that example. someone says something that Jamil would say if Jamil were here. Right. So I just have to chime in here and say... As much as I agree, there are countries, Egypt, Pakistan, the Saudis, where we have real national security interests at stake. 
my contention is this, that's fine, but we shouldn't ever be cowed into feeling like we have to take the word democracy or human rights off the table when we're having conversations with these countries. We can do both of these things, and I don't know what position we're left in if we if we stop talking to them about what goes into our country human rights report and we start raising issues with them of their detention of bloggers and, and media activists. Where does that well, leave us as a country if I, we've now we're only selectively only selectively talking about and, democracy. And I do rights. think this is an area where it's it's less of a fault line between the parties and more of a fault line between the executive branch and the legislative yeah. branch. Congress is never going to move too far away from total support for democracy and human rights. It's just not in their nature. They're always going to they're always going to tilt towards let's help the the human the poor person who got thrown in jail for expressing her views on a blog or uh, you know the the slain journalist. Congress is always going to come down on those side over sometimes even our national security interests. Matthew, do you yeah. want to add something? I, and I agree with um, what Jody's saying, although I think there's a certain reality. If you look at the history of you know foreign policy over the last hundred years, from either a Democrat or Republican administration, you know, obviously we worked with Russia, Stalinist Russia in World War II to defeat Hitlerism. I doubt at Yalta, FDR was banging Stalin's head about democracy and freedom. Now, maybe he should have been, but the reality is I think there are times where you have to pull back slightly on that. Who I'm not lost saying you, Poland, Matthew? Who lost Poland? Yeah, or who lost China? So um, what is the political case for engaging with the Saudis right now? You know, we're now a year out from the murder of, you know, of Khashoggi, the journalist, the Washington Post journalist, and it does seem to be that there's a pivot going on in Washington back toward embracing uh, MBS. Well, and I don't think that pivot is um, a restrictively a Republican pivot either. I mean, I, I think there's a recognition that you still have Saudi Arabia, you still have Iran next door. The problems haven't changed in the last year. I, I'm not saying that you abandon the democracy promotion efforts with Saudi Arabia, and, I'm, and I think um, sanction and shaming Saudi Arabia was appropriate, but that doesn't change the fact that Iran is next door threatening the region. I'm just with Jody here. I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So with a lot of these countries, Egypt is a good example. We share security interests together. At the same time, the manner in which the Egyptian government pursues some of its domestic policies, for example, I mean, the the protests um, didn't start about big infrastructure. They started about corruption because somebody made a YouTube video. And the difference between Yalta and today is social media. There's such a big difference in the information environment. And these are mass protests of people. And if the United States doesn't say something, these people are going to remember. And one day they may be a party at the ballot box. Well, I mean, to circle back around to where we were four minutes ago, where where was this talk from the two of you during the Green Movement in 2013 in Iran? It was nowhere because... Well, because maybe, maybe you might not think the wrong two people. I'm not, sure. I'm not saying you specifically, but You're I'm saying, saying in you. general, the Democratic Party uh-huh. and elected Democrats were not jumping up to help the the people seeking democracy in Iran because the broader the broader view was it's better for U.S. national security and U.S. national interest to try and strike. What I feel I've always viewed was a cockamamie um, deal on nuclear weapons, but that was the view. Tamp down supporting the Green Movement because we're we're working the back channels to get a nuclear well, deal. Well, and in fairness, Democrats were obliged to support their president, president of yeah. their party, who was making this deal. I, I, I don't think that's unfair to say, and frankly, it's part of their job. Just as some Republicans are choosing to support this administration and its initiatives, I, mean, I it's don't not, think it's, it's fair crazy. to suggest that anybody tamped down the Green Movement. I'm curious what you think what you think should have happened. 
happen. Iran is a very, very difficult place to work in, particularly for people supporting democracy. Mm-hmm. There was a real movement there. Uh, it was encouraged. Could it have been more encouraged? Yes. Did the negotiations, the kind of behind-the-scenes negotiations, maybe have some role in how engaged the U.S. was? Maybe on the part of the administration. I don't think on the part of Congress at all. It would just be nice then, as it is now with Hong Kong, to hear the voice of all the leaders of the U.S. government who are appropriately involved in these things, from the president to leaders in Congress, to voice their support for people who are agitating for democracy and human rights. I think that was and true. And the NBA. In, in tw- and yeah. and, and <laughs> Agreed. God bless Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal has come out and said the right thing. Uh, let's celebrate that. All right, let's. Uh, we're getting close to the end here, and I see we've um, haven't really come to a lot of agreement. So let's try to do an exit question. Uh, so we've had a lot of protests, a lot of a lot of political action around the world. It's 2019. How does this compare to the political changes we saw? 30 years ago in 1989. Is this on a par with that? Not quite as big of a deal, or more, or a bigger deal, Jody. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew. Uh, It's not on a par with that. It doesn't change geopolitical cleavages in the way that uh, the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of Eastern Europe under communism did. But it is still obviously worth talking about. Dana. I probably agree with Matt, but I'm going to say TBD. It's early days and we just don't know. Yeah, I'm going with TBD. Jody, you want to revise? I think that those movements were profound in changing the geopolitical situation of the entire world and certainly the United States. Uh, any one of these movements has that potential. You know, you can see Tunisia. They just went through a successful round of, of parliamentary and presidential elections, for example. I don't know that we could have predicted when those protests started what impact that would have, but I would argue that 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 transition in Tunisia was about more than Tunisia and has resonance in the rest of the Middle East. Uh, these these uh, protests may as well. All right. Let's, uh, let's shift to our second topic, which is uh, controversial policies emerging from our democratic, uh, our co-democratic countries of Brazil and India. India, of course, uh, the largest country in the world by population in South Asia, uh, has been uh, has made some changes in the way it handles its legal recognition of the province of Jammu and Kashmir. It's a very controversial issue. Uh, a lot of people have criticized the Modi government for taking these internal steps to change the way they, they dealt with this. Pakistan is incensed. A lot of folks in the in the Islamic world view this as a uh, racial or biased thing. Uh, there's been plenty of criticism. However, uh, in fairness, let's point out that uh, it was precipitated by terrorist attacks against Indian uh, soldiers in Kashmir that came across the border from Pakistan, from a uh, militant Islamic group uh, based in Pakistan. So there's there's a real security threat there. This has been an issue that's been ongoing for 70 years since uh, independence from Great Britain. It's India is a democracy. They chose uh, their their government fairly and freely. More people voted in that election probably than in, in uh, the last few American elections combined. 
in Brazil, also a democracy, we have uh, a, a new government, a conservative government, the Bolsonaro uh, administration, which has allowed an unprecedented level of burning of the forests, of deforestation in the Amazon. This is a critical uh, area for the, for the global ecology, for uh, global warming has implicated climate change, and we've seen this government be arguably very irresponsible in the decisions it's making about land use and that kind of thing and how it impacts the, the, literally the air that the rest of us breathe and the, and the climate we have to live in. So on the other hand, the Bolsonaro government is fairly elected. They're allowed to manage their own resources uh, under our nation-state system of government. There is no, uh, that I'm aware of, treaty that prohibits them from doing what they're doing. So, so let's throw it out to the group. How do we, as uh, U.S. government and as champions of democracy and representative government, respond when our fellow democracies make decisions that we don't like? So let's talk about India first. Um, as concerned as I am about the burning of the Amazon, I think the question of India and Pakistan has potentially much larger global implications. You're talking about a standoff between two nuclear armed states. Uh, you're right, Les. Uh, that region has been the site of numerous terrorist attacks. Uh, and India has legitimate security interests uh, to protect. At the same time, India unilaterally acted in an in region that has internationally has autonomous status, uh, and that action it's hard to see that as promoting more peace and security globally rather than less. It's inevitable that the Pakistanis, not to mention the local population, is going to act very badly to that. It's hard to see that tamping down uh, terrorist responses. And again, we're talking about two nuclear-armed states. So I think in the context of peace and security issues, this is the reason it quickly landed before the UN Security Council. It has to be of the gravest international concern because of the potential implications. I agree. And and, and just to add, pile on to the sort of the tinderbox that uh, Jody described, I mean, these are two nations that have gone to war with each other several times. I mean, so we're not talking about, um, you know, two neighbors that say bad things about each other. If you go back, there lots of blood has been shed between the two nations. Um, I, I think the other um, diff so I think any Indian administration would be in it in a box in terms of the difficulty of dealing with Kashmir. It's an incredibly difficult issue. Um, I think what's unfortunate is the Modi government tends to veer into um, very almost Hindu chauvinist displays of power. And sometimes I wonder if thinking about what is right in terms of long-term interests of India and the shakiness of uh, India's uh, national security um, gets trumped by what can I do that's good for my base if I'm speaking in the voice of Modi. And I'm afraid sometimes he puts his foot a little too hard on the accelerator of what's good for my base and isn't thinking carefully enough about what this could mean for the broader picture. And I think the move in Kashmir was that, because obviously India has been the victim of numerous uh, terrorist attacks, if you go back to what happened in Mumbai, and they all seem to emanate from Pakistan or some uh, faction that is at least um, uh, given a blind eye by Pakistan. And the Indians historically have been pretty patient uh, in terms of not doing anything too extreme, not invading Pakistan. And I think this is getting closer to that sort of that that 
that marker, but uh, you know, over which you might trip into a war. Yeah, I don't have anything to say that disagrees with what's been pre- previously said. I would just say the question is not. Um, what should we do as a democracy when other democracies choose policies that we do not like? The question is, what should we do when governments, democracies or not, take actions or make decisions that threaten our interests or stability? So this is Pakistan and India. They both have nuclear weapons. They both, because of actions against each other, we've seen terrorist groups, terrorist attacks emanate. Um, we have economic interests, security interests, counterterrorism interests, etc. And this decision by Modi destabilizes the region in a way that could ultimately or already does threaten U.S. interests. And secondly, I would just say, because this is a fault line podcast, that we don't have very uh, solid ground to stand on in terms of executive decision making playing to a base and not to the broader interests here in this country. Well, uh, frankly, exa- that's exactly right. And I think we're, we as a democracy are not in a position to judge other democracies when they do make decisions that their leaders see as politically necessary. The entire no, whole, I don't think finish, that's the same finish, thing at all. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Uh, and and then by all means come at me. Uh, but let's let's just hypothesize for a moment that the entire reason you have a representative democracy system is to translate the will of the people who are the ultimate holders of political power in our country and should be around the world into a workable uh, political decision-making system and that our system has produced leaders that have gone in different directions, but it's a reflection of the will of the people. India has done the same thing. So has Brazil, frankly. We, again, we may not like the outcome. It may be antithetical to our interests if you perceive it in a certain way, but it is also a reflection of the political changes that are going on in that country and how they are trying to deal with their external threats. So I would just, let me conclude by saying we should give some latitude to our fellow democratic countries when they are dealing with difficult public policy decisions. It may be the case that a country like India or Brazil, that that Modi or Bolsonaro is legally within their rights to take those actions, but it doesn't mean that we have to rubber stamp them, right? It's not as if these actions... I didn't actions, say rubber stamp them. It's not as, not as, as if these actions by India or Bolsonaro letting the Amazon burn. It's not as if they don't have international repercussions and that we stand here not having any possible reaction to those. The U.S., both through its statements and its legal actions, can respond to Modi, and we can certainly respond through trade actions to Bolsonaro allowing the Amazon to burn. And in fact, that action has been suggested by a variety of countries, as well as members of Congress. And Les, it's not just about the executive or the elected person representing or translating the will of the people. Presumably, that executive has access to intelligence, security briefings, and makes decisions that are in the security interest of that country. And furthermore, it's not for us, the United States, to say, well, we don't like what you did, but if it has implications for U.S. security interests or objectives, that I think is when we do need to say something and not just rubber stamp And in it. the case of India, potentially a violation of their constitution, right? Well, well that's I think that's India for the Indian, Indian court to, yeah. to work out. I, I, you know, I do think um, generally we would give more deference to decisions made by democratically elected govern, uh, governments. I take uh, Dana's point that to the point where it starts to implicate U.S. national security interests, we might take a different point of view. In fact, in some form or fashion, that's the point of view we took when 
um, um, uh, Morsi was elected in Egypt, and that was certainly the point of view we took with um, the elections in the Palestinian uh, territories when Hamas was elected. I don't think we all of a sudden said, oh, well, Hamas has been elected. We're fine with whatever they decide and do. Um, so I think there's a certain limiting principle to this, but I do think um, to the point we were making a moment ago about elected leaders acting on behalf of their base, that happens all the time. And in my view, and I know we're coming on to Brazil, that's exactly what Macron was doing when he was saying, oh, let's put the deforestation on the G7 agenda without ever giving a phone call to the president of Brazil to maybe talk about it outside of the headlines. It seemed to me that he was trying to demonstrate his you know, uh, environmental bona fides to the elites of France rather than thinking about how do we really address this problem in a constructive way. All right, so let's uh, let's throw a question out there. Uh, by the way, I think this is a great topic, and it's uh, it goes to the issue of sovereignty. Uh, it goes to the issue of how much we should be involved in the affairs of another country. What's the what are the limits of our promotion of democracy? How much you know, frankly, how much do these Decisions that other countries make that we don't necessarily like. Take, for example, Brexit, which a lot of people saw as totally antithetical to Great Britain's interests, but which the British people very clearly wanted. It won by a pretty healthy margin. Um, that you have to take into into account when you are making your calculations about national security issues and the way the U.S. is going to view things, these changing demographics and the changing power structures around the world. India is becoming more and more self-confident. It is becoming more powerful. It is becoming a bigger player on the world stage. It is becoming more of more and more of our ally in this Indo-Pacific strategy, which was, is designed to counter or constrain China, as we all know. So, like, so we should, I think, be very realistic in our assessments of their policy decisions um, as, as we think about these things. Not to say we shouldn't shy away from things that, that impact us. Nuclear war is very serious. We need to maintain a balance, and there, and there should be uh, a lot of scrutiny. Um, all right, so let's, let's quickly turn to Brazil. Uh, let's throw a hypothetical question out there. Look for a quick answer on this, and then we'll move on to the next topic. If uh, if Democrats were in the White House right now, would we be considering, let's say, tariffs against Brazil to get them to change their behavior, Jody? Right. So I think there's always a scale of options and a process for pursuing those options. So the scale of the problem in Brazil is literally huge, right? We're talking about the Amazon holds something like 40% of, uh, of, of global carbon uh, in its base. I don't think it's an immediate tariff action. It's a, a matter of pursuing a course of action. So there's a phone call to be had, phone calls to be had, there's discussions to be had, potential negotiations to be had before you land in a place where you're automatically imposing a tariff. My concern is I'm not sure that we're pursuing any of those remedies or any of that process right now that might eventually result in some type of tariff action by the U.S. if we continue to be concerned about deforestation and the burning of the Amazon. I don't disagree. I mean, as I said a moment ago, I think when you're dealing with a prickly populist leader that's got a lot of pride, the, the worst thing you can do is to poke him in the eye publicly without first going through the diplomatic channels to try and get a better result. All right, we'll call that the uh, exit question. Uh, let's let's turn to the issue that happened uh, over the weekend here, uh, the slaying by U.S. special forces of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, the leader, the founder and leader of ISIS, uh, one of the uh, worst and most uh, intense terrorist movements uh, around the world in, in recent memory. 
uh, U.S. forces in Syria went in with cooperation from some other folks to find him. He was killed along with some members of his family. Uh, Dana, you've been following these issues very closely. Can you can you tell us what the significance of this is and what the what the issues are for the U.S. going forward? So I think it's incredibly significant that the leader of ISIS has been killed. I would just say a few things about this operation. It is truly remarkable that the operation happened successfully despite the actions of the Trump administration. So so whether it's spilling or leaking classified intelligence, antagonizing our intelligence community, pulling the rug out from under our U.S. military in Syria, so not to mention our own national security apparatus. And this really shows the resilience and commitment to service of, of the people, the, the deep state, as you will. And two is they weren't. This operation didn't start from U.S. forces in Syria. It started from U.S. forces in Iraq based on, as I understand it, um, in from um, the open source, uh, intelligence that originated with the Iraqi government, cultivated by the Iraq, Iraqi government and given to the United States, and two, based on an intelligence network painstakingly developed by the head of the Syrian Democratic Forces. So all of that... so. So um, a U.S. partner, Iraq, where many more U.S. forces are present than the U.S. forces in Syria that may or may not be um, withdrawing, to the Syrian Democratic Forces who continued supporting this operation despite the fact that we moved out of the way for the Turkish military to move in, not to mention that where Baghdadi was killed, Idlib province, which is not where U.S. forces are present, in northwest Syria, apparently very close to a Turkish military base. So that, A, raises questions for me about whether the Turkish government can actually continue to carry on the mission of defeating ISIS if the head of ISIS was a couple miles away from a Turkish military base. It raises questions about their commitment to counterterrorism. And Idlib is where Assad and the Russian military have been undergoing their own operations. So are these guys really going going to care or be able to continue a counterterrorism mission. And by the way, may I remind you, Turkey, NATO ally, really close to their border, just saying. Matthew, what did you think of the president's remarks uh, announcing the results of the operation? Um, unusual. Unusual. I mean, those statements, and, and we remember the Obama statement uh, upon uh, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden by our special forces, those statements tend to be pretty terse, pretty cut and dry. And uh, typically the, the follow-up questions that inevitably come from the reporters are batted away. And those, those events, that public event of the president speaking to us about something like this normally lasts, what, five minutes, ten minutes? They're normally very curt. And then... Over the, the ensuing weeks, you start to learn more and more as people are loosened up a little bit to talk about what really happened. And and so it was very unusual to have the president speaking at length in great detail about what was going on and adding the the usual eccentric comments he adds to events like in, these. In the NFL, it would have been spiking the football, taunting the other team, doing a dance uh, in the end zone, and then also mugging for the cameras at the same time. Uh, you could say that. I, I th the other thing that I did wonder, though, is to and, – and it could be one of those things where there's a mild suggestion in a bullet point from a staffer somewhere that then becomes the theme of the, of the, of the event, which is 
there is some benefit to saying he died in a cowardly fashion. He did not die in martyr. He did not die courageously. He killed children along the way. And Trump went back to that over and over to the point where you were almost beaten over the head with it. But I do wonder if there wasn't, if that wasn't a considered decision. And it wouldn't surprise me if someone said this would be a good thing to communicate. Exit question. Uh, who was worse as a terrorist, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or Osama bin Laden Jody? I'm not interested in buying into this narrative. They were both awful people. Matthew. I agree with Jody. They were both terrible. If you want to talk about who is more effective in causing U.S. death, obviously you'd say Osama bin Laden, but they're both gone, and I'm delighted by the fact that they're both gone. Dana. I associate myself with Jody. Les, what do you think? I say Osama bin Laden was worse. He killed thousands of Americans. And frankly, without al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, there would be no ISIS or Baghdadi. Okay. Um, let's go to uh, issues that we're following that might be outside of the news. Who's ready to jump in? Jody. So I'm tracking Putin's hosting of 43 out of 54 African heads of state for an economic summit at the resort town of Sochi in Russia, where they are penning millions, if not billions, of dollars in deals with Putin's stated interest of doubling Russian trade ties with Africa to the tune of $40 billion. So the U.S. current U.S. investment is about $39 billion in Africa. Putin, by setting that number at 40, is clearly trying to leapfrog the U.S., and he's doing not a bad job by hosting that uh, at the resort town in Sochi. So Putin does it at the presidential level. The U.S. sent who to the uh, the U.S. Corporate Council event in Maputo a couple months ago? I think they sent uh, Ambassador Mark Green from yeah, USAID. Yeah, USAID administrator. Slightly lower than head of state. Matthew, what are you following? Uh, tacking back to our theme of uh, global demonstrations, I'm very interested in the demonstrations in Iraq and the unfortunate loss of life. Uh, where it appears that government, um, I don't know what you call them, security forces or snipers deliberately killed people with lethal force. Um, this is a real test for a very fragile, very young democracy in terms of how do you handle unrest, especially in a very fragmented sectarian country like Iraq. Dana. I am tracking um, the State Department put out a statement this weekend noting the, taken very much for granted, 25th anniversary of the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty. So this is, is an example of not military means, but diplomacy that could be reinforced and warmed and strengthened through technical assistance, engagement, um, political encouragement. And these are places where if we take our eye off the ball, this is an area where we don't want problems. All right, I'm following, along with my buddy Matthew Hyman, uh, elections in Israel, the outcome of those elections where uh, Benny Gans, the uh, opponent of Benjamin Netanyahu, now has the opportunity to form a government. Uh, could be a real change in the government of the, of the state of Israel. Netanyahu has been around for years. He dominates Israeli politics and foreign policy. This change could have implications for the U.S. and the rest of the region. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you'll come back and listen to the next episode of Fault Lines.